Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker and investor, joined here today by none other than my buddy, Nick. Thank you for having me, Dan. Every Tuesday and Friday, we are here talking about real estate, talking about real estate investing and what's going on. And we've got a good episode today. And what are we talking about today? Well, the title is The Five Best Ways to Make Money in Real Estate. Although I think we kind of spiraled out of control and it's like, can maybe broadly yeah. be grouped into four categories, but I actually don't even know how many are on this list now. It's a, it's, it's a working title. You know, we started with five and guys, hey, guess what? It turns out there's a whole bunch of ways to make money in real estate. So stick around for that. Yeah. So quickly to summarize, we're going to talk about a few great ways to make money in real estate, especially given that the market has been kind of unpredictable for real estate in all of these different categories, but especially in direct investing. Mortgage rates are high, prices are kind of coming down. And so a lot of people are wondering if actually buying real estate as an individual is the best way to, to own real estate. So to group this into four categories, we're just going to talk about making money buying real estate, or which actually turned out to be kind of making money owning real estate, and then making money selling real estate, making money lending money for real estate, and then investing in real estate equities such as REITs, MIX, etc. So before we get started, I want to do our review thank you. This review comes from Sydney Investments. And it says, well-researched, perfectly delivered. This is a fantastic podcast. Dan and Nick have great topics and the content is so well-researched and each episode is well-planned out and focused. Every episode will deliver you with a ton of value. I look forward to the new episode release. Sydney Investments. Wow. Thanks, guys. That's a, that's a great one. They're actually friends of mine as well. Super impressive couple that is crushing it in real estate and in business. We actually... On the mortgage side of things, we're just working on funding for them for this really cool commercial kind of industrial property that they actually made an offer on. Unfortunately, we lost in multiples. But man, these two are unstoppable. Just a just a great couple that has everything from student rentals to burrs, and I they're always they're always doing something. And I actually, you know, going back to the importance of networking within real estate and real estate investing. I know them originally from a WhatsApp group that I'm part of, one of the many that I'm part of with a couple hundred people in it. They are also in there. They've asked great questions and provided great value over the years. And then I was lucky enough to meet them at an investor meetup just this past summer where we had a couple cold beers on the patio and were able to talk in, in person. So Thanks so much, Matt and Laura. I'll be sure to send this episode your way and uh, really appreciate the support, guys. Yeah, I follow them on Instagram as well, actually. It looks like they're incredibly active and doing some really cool deals in uh, in the Hamilton market. Speaking of Instagram, leave us a review just like they did with your Instagram handle as the name and we'll give you a shout out on the show. And also, if you are listening to the podcast at any time during the day, feel free to take a screenshot of it, post that on your Instagram story and tag us and we'll share you because our goal here is to build this community and other people who follow us will follow you and you know you guys can connect and, and do deals together, whatever it is. So without further ado, I'm going to quickly go through a deal of the day. This is a listing that I have coming up this week. It'll probably be listed by the time the show airs. It's a beautiful custom built home. It was actually built by a 23-year-old eighth generation home builder client of mine who's really cool. Super cool guy. Super yeah, we'll have, we'll have him on the show here yeah. sometime. But I calculated at like around a five cap uh, using landlord.io, 4.95% actually, I think. And that was using it as an Airbnb, which was like 13000 a month. List price is just shy of $2.7 million. 
I had to use AirDNA and All the Rooms, which are two online kind of like data science platforms for short-term rental platforms. And to try and find like kind of come up with that price. And I still don't know if it's exact. But the one challenge that I noticed was it was a really cash intensive deal. And even at that cap rate, I actually had to drop the loan to value. I had it at 80% loan to value. So I had 20% down that I was modeling at originally. But in order to get it cash, get to get the cash on cash to be a more positive number, I actually had to drop the loan to value to 75%. So it was negative when the the loan to value was 80%. I personally don't buy money to have negative cash on cash or buy buy real estate to to lose money. So so that one that's why I did that. Very interesting. I mean, you know, we should point out that this is a luxury brand new build with with a sprawling floor plan of probably over 3000 square feet above grade. What the builder did, which is really cool, is he put a so essentially it could be called you could call it a duplex because it does have a full suite in the basement, full bathroom, bedroom, kitchen, everything, separate entrance. He, the builder put that in to allow the eventual owners to either have a nanny suite, in law suite, whatever you want to call it, or to have a traditional basement suite rental. So love the fact that he threw that in there. I think it adds a ton of value and it allowed us to put it on here as a deal of the day, which is a good little bit of free press for for your new listing. Yeah, for sure. And I really like the the house. Like the house he built is incredible. And I guess for so I, I did plug that into landlord.io and for anybody wanting to learn how to use landlord.io, we are having a webinar with them. They've agreed to basically put this on for our audience for all of you who have joined. Hundreds of, of our of our listeners have joined Landlord to to use that deal analyzer tool. And um, they're going to give us a, a webinar to our listeners on how to use all of their tools, manage your properties, use the deal analyzer tools, gather some feedback, because I know there have been some bugs for Canadian users as they're moving into the Canadian market. November 23rd, the link will be in the show notes for that. We'd love to see you there. And we'll be live analyzing some deals and stuff as well. So Nick, you want to start yeah, us off? You gotta, I think we're doing Nick's story time, which I feel like we haven't done in a long time. <laughs> We haven't. We haven't. I don't know if I like Nick's story time, but it's a working title, just like the title of this episode. So yeah, before we get into today's episode, I, I had a really came across a really interesting story that I really wanted to share with everyone. And it is about land and sand. Now, when you think of sand, you're probably daydreaming of white glistening sand on a beach, maybe in Jamaica, Turks and Caicos, Hawaii, a beach that probably looks so perfect, it reminds you of a Microsoft Windows screensaver barely looks real. And as Canadians entering our winter months, sand and beaches are probably top of mind for most of us right now. I can tell you I'm in Toronto. It's Tuesday, November 15th, and it just started to snow. It's a bit of a whiteout out there. So I'm thinking of the beach. Now, sand plays a great role in our vacations, no doubt, but sand also plays a vital role in our built environment. Sand is a hot commodity these days, so much so that there are actually major sand thefts. Hundreds of millions of pounds of sand also get traded across the globe annually. Yes, that's right. You heard that. As in people are literally stealing beaches, which is sad, but also kind of comical. But that's a story for another time. Sand is a critical component in many of the products we depend on in everyday life, such as glass, concrete, asphalt, computer chips, and much more. We actually use up to 50 billion tons of sand every year, making it the second largest resource extracted and traded by volume each year behind none other than water. So as cities grow, we start to see the need for more glass and concrete. These are literally the two things you need to build buildings. Again, I'm sitting in Toronto surrounded by condo towers that rely heavily on sand. 
but nobody wants the desert sand. It's too smooth and silky to be used in construction. There is a grainy, gritty sand that is supposed to be used. But some countries are more major importers of sand than others and use it for other things than just construction. Singapore, for instance, is the world's largest sand importer, importing an estimated 517 million tons of sand over the last 20 years. Most of the sand has come from neighboring countries, Southeastern Asian countries such as Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Cambodia. Now, Singapore actually buys all its sand and dumps it on the edge of the country to make Singapore bigger. So since the 1970s, it has actually expanded its territory by 20%, physically changing its borders visible from outer space and satellite images. So what was water a few decades ago is now part of the bustling city of Singapore. The same thing can be seen in Dubai and other parts of the UAD. If you look at Dubai's Palm Tree Island and the luxury communities that literally were water 10, 15 years ago are now streets, roads, and mansions. The reason I found this so interesting is, Dan, you and I and our listeners have probably heard us talk a lot about land and the value of it and why we love it and even the fact that Bill Gates and stuff own a ton of land. And what, you know, what do we say about land? You got to buy it because they aren't making any more of it. Well, it looks like we were mistaken because Singapore and Dubai are literally making more land. Yeah, I've always, I've always felt it was kind of funny that by land, they're not making it anymore. As soon as they started, they started actually literally making land and making land in like <laughs> high demand metropolis or metropolitan areas like Dubai. It's funny, like, you know, Canada, we, we have a lot of land, second largest landmass in the world. We also had the tallest freestanding structure in the world before they built the Burj Dubai. And we also had the largest shopping mall in the world in the West Edmonton Mall before they built their big mall over there. And so not only have they beat us, not have they, only have they beat us at building giant phallic towers and large enclosed <laughs> shopping malls to protect, to protect people's shopping experiences from, uh, from climate because realistically it's so hot there and it's so cold, I think, in Edmonton a lot of the time. So, But now they've beat us at at land because they're, they're literally manufacturing it. So anyway, let's get back to what we're here to discuss. Maybe we'll take a quick break and then we'll, we'll jump into the different ways to make money in real estate. Okay. So we're going to be talking about making money owning real estate, making money selling real estate, making money lending for real estate, and investing in real estate equities. We're going to unpack each one of these and look at the unique opportunities within each category. We're also going to do something kind of cool here and give each one a bit of a score. And we'll look at each one based off the difficulty, the risk, and the reward on a kind of high, low, and medium basis. So let's start with owning, right? So we, we've kind of divided these into three different categories, and we're going to start with owning. First one in that category is house hacking. What is house hacking? Well, simply put, house hacking is a strategy that involves becoming a landlord and renting out portions of your primary residence to generate income. This can be as simple as buying a two, three bedroom house or living in a two bedroom condo and renting out one or multiple of those rooms. It can be a bit more of a traditional sense and you buy a duplex or a triplex and live in one of the units and rent the other ones out. But it can also be as basic as renting out your garage, renting out a section of land. If you've got a, you know, a parcel of a few acres, renting an acre to a farmer, basically it is anything that helps you offset your mortgage. Yeah. Basically introducing an income stream to your primary residence. So it could even be using your house as a short-term rental when you're traveling or, you know, you're staying at your partner's place or whatever it is. 
The main goal of house hacking is to offset your mortgage and expenses. A great house hack is you live for free. A good house hack, you are getting money every month that decreases your shelter expenses, basically reducing your opportunity cost of owning that house. So from a difficulty perspective, I would probably put this at low. Everybody, for the most part, knows how to own a primary residence. And the risk is a bit lower as well because, you know, yeah, you have a tenant, but you're also there managing the property. You're living in the property. It's a lot easier to control. You're probably more likely to have choose a tenant that you're going to have a good friendly relationship with that would be less transactional as an investment property, as an example. And the reward, I would say, is probably medium. You're offsetting the capital costs of you or the opportunity cost of you renting a different place. And you're also getting some extra income as well. The other piece is a degree of the part of the house that you're not renting out is fully tax deductible as your primary residence. This is actually an important note because a lot of people think the whole thing is tax deductible. You don't have to pay capital gains tax on that house when you sell it. But for the portion that you're actually running as a business, you, you do have to pay tax on it. Yeah, great points. I, and I like that, you know, low difficulty, low risk and, and a medium reward, a medium return. Sounds like a no brainer to me. And a great, great, easily accessible way for anyone to start playing in the real estate investing yeah, it's a good space. Way to, to dip your exactly, toes in. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to STRs, short-term rentals. Now we're all pretty familiar with this. This is the Airbnb or now the VRBO route of things can be very lucrative, but they are also a ton of work. We are literally setting one up right now, Dan, you and I with some of our partners. And there's a lot that goes into it. You need to provide a full house with everything from TVs to towels, cutlery to couches, you need to get Wi-Fi set up, and you need to have systems in place for cleaning, maintenance, and more. Yeah, so they're definitely hands-on. I I would say very much a side hustle or a part-time job. If you're beginning and don't have systems, they are functionally building a business. There are also benefits, like you definitely get rewarded for that extra work that you're putting in. As discussed, your returns have the potential to be possibly more than double that of what you would get for a traditional rental. But a bad month with lots of vacancy or a slower economy can hurt your cash flow more. And and one of the things is they're typically the rates are typically measured in days or weekly rates. So from a difficulty perspective, I'm going to put this one in at high. I think the risk as well on the vacancy side, but also the amount of work is a high risk. But the reality is for those two things, you're getting a high reward for it. The returns are, there's very few ways to cash flow a property as well. I just thought of an amazing statement, high risk, high reward. You should trademark that one. That's I'm sure a, nobody's come up with that no, before. No, that's a good one. And that applies directly to this. Okay. Let's move on to short-term rentals, older brother, the medium-term rental. So this is usually kind of a, a 28-day stay or more and stays are typically measured in in months at this point, most likely. Now, these types of accommodations are typically meant for people who are in need of like a semi-permanent arrangement, right? Like you're not going to stay in a hotel or an Airbnb for one, three, six months kind of thing. Some examples may include a temporary work assignment, right? We see a lot of doctors and nurses staying in medium-term rentals, also known as executive short-term rentals, same thing. Temporary work assignments, extended vacations. I had an old boss that used to go rent the same place in Blue Mountain in Collingwood in Ontario for the for three or four months every single winter. He'd been doing it for years and years. Extended vacations in the summer, same thing, cottage if you want to go and rent a place. Or if you're, again, another one of our friends, if you're waiting on a new house to get built and that timing doesn't line up, you go stay in an STR for a little bit. The thing yeah. about MTRs is they're usually just as much work as an STR. 
because you have to have all that upfront capital and you got to get everything set up, right? You need Wi-Fi, TV, cutlery, all that stuff as well. Yeah, I don't know if I would say as much on the turnover side because you don't have as many cleanings, not as many like changing the linens and all that stuff. So maybe a little bit less work. But the the pros of an MTR is that you hopefully have less vacancy than an STR and you might not have to sacrifice some of that on the return side. You can't charge as high of a a nightly rate. You typically will see long-term discounts on Airbnb as an example. You're still going to charge more than you would as a long-term rental and less than you would as a short-term rental. So it's literally somewhere in the middle. I'm actually seeing a lot of investors now trying to use this to actually like circumvent problems in the landlord and tenant system, which is is a is a, a trend worth discussing all on its own. It might even need its own episode when we get into the nitty gritty of paralegal and landlord and tenant systems. But basically there's a theory that from twenty eight to a hundred and I think it's six months, so like a hundred and 60 days or 180 days maybe. From that within that period of time that's a medium term rental. So you're outside of what most municipalities have as a short term rental jurisdiction, but you're not the idea is that you're not supposed to be regulated by the landlord and tenant board. The reality is that if a tenant decides that they're a tenant, they're a tenant and almost all landlord and tenant boards in the in the pro, or in the country would would agree with that. So I think that it, it hasn't necessarily been that theory hasn't necessarily been market validated over a couple of years through the landlord and tenant system, but it's happening out there. Difficulty, probably medium risk, I'd say high, you're probably assuming the same risks as a short term rental and the reward would be medium. So you're seeing the trade off there between the, the medium risk, medium reward or medium difficulty, sorry, medium reward. Yeah. Okay, so now in the same family here, we go to long term rentals. Now, this is the model and product that we're all familiar with. This is kind of the rock of the retail real estate investing, right? The long-term buy and hold rental. Let's use a duplex as an example. You buy it, you either convert it into a duplex. If you purchase it as a single family, you put the work in and, and duplex it, or you buy it and assume existing tenants, or you buy it and assume it vacant, and then you put your own tenants in there. But as soon as you have the property with tenants in there, it's pretty simple from there. You're basically just providing, you know, it's your job as, as a landlord to provide a great living situation as well as great service to your clients, aka your tenants. And after that, it's it's ideally, which is never this easy, <laughs> full disclosure, but ideally it's just, you know, you sit back and collect a check every month, ideally for the next year or two or three or so on. With this one difficulty, we put as medium because you know no no acquisition of a, of a property and dealing with tenants I think is is easy. So difficulty would be medium risk. We have low with an asterisk and we'll circle back there. And I think the reward is also medium. You're not going to get the returns you are from an STR, but it is probably the safest and best bet for most real estate investors. Now let's talk about why we put the risk as low with an asterisk, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I think that it varies on a provincial basis, which whether or not the area's board is up to date, I guess would even be, it doesn't even have to be landlord friendly. Like, honestly, I don't even know if one could argue that different areas are landlord or tenant friendly. It's whether or not they have eight month minimum processing times for, (laughs) like, I still have notices out from early this year that I haven't even got dates for so wow. I'm, I'm running at I'm running at 11, 11 months now on on a yeah and don't even have a date so again this is this is Ontario probably the worst landlord and tenant 
system in in the country just from like there's articles saying it potentially might have collapsed it's not functioning properly so there's a there's a scenario in which that risk profile could extend to a medium if you are stuck with a tenant who decides they don't want to pay or are causing you problems or whatever and you really have no recourse so that risk from my perspective depends on the recourse element totally so so if we, and and another another um, thing to consider there is if you okay let's say so let's take it outside of Ontario let's go to Alberta I know that the barrier to entry for a lot of let's say duplexes even cash flowing duplexes right off the bat is smaller than it is here but the tenant pool right if you if you just can't find people to rent your place that is risky as well however yeah, so there's vacancy risk exactly however overall ideally if you've done this properly, you know that there's a tenant pool there. You've done your research. You've built in vacancy. So, you know, I'd like to leave that risk as an overall low. I would agree. I, th- I think it should be. Well, like risk is things that you can't control for. And the landlord and tenant piece you, you couldn't control for two to five years ago when we didn't know it was going to be that bad. Yeah. But now you can model that assumption and say, okay, well, if I have a turnover, if I'm turning over one unit per year and I know on average it's going to take me six months to do that and I have to model that into my investment. And now I put that in at a 10% vacancy risk, even though Ontario is at a 1% vacancy risk. I'm going to put it in at 10 because the board is and, – and same thing if you're buying some of these, you know, like the deal that we just looked at for the deal of the day a couple of episodes ago. And I said, well, it's in a 12% vacancy market. Make sure you're modeling that in. So then at least you know and, you're, and when, when your place is vacant for two months of the year, you're not surprised. The other piece that's worth mentioning is you can combine a lot of these strategies. Like you could get a duplex where you have a short-term rental in one unit and a medium-term rental in another unit. Or you could house hack and, and run your house as a short-term rental. A lot of people do this. They'll buy a cottage and cottage hack you know, and, and they get a lifestyle return. Maybe they don't make that much money because it's an expensive asset, but they get the benefit of having a cottage that they can occupy a couple months out of the year. And so a lot of people are using the Airbnb strategy, especially for that lifestyle return. Um, Let's get to the next broad category here, which is making money selling real estate. You know, you and I have made the joke a lot that we're on team never sell. We don't like selling. We (laughs) want to buy and and own. But I I mean, there are good ways to make money in this space. Not my preference, but I've seen a lot of people do better than I have doing these things. So number one, wholesaling real estate. Wholesaling is basically you're dealing in in I don't want I know you you know it's written in here distress but it's probably more just properties where there's an arbitrage it's really forming an arbitrage they're buying the unit at below what it's worth and they're selling it at market and they're taking a spread it's basically functioning at a as a realtor because they don't they don't actually I, I mean in in car this is actually banned in in car sales it's called uh, curbsiding So you have to actually take possession of a vehicle before you can sell it again. You can't just flip the paper. But they basically take the role of a middleman to match the investor buyer with sellers. So in real estate wholesaling, a wholesaler puts the seller's home under contract. So they're basically buying it, in quotation marks, conditional on something. They have a due due diligence period. And then they they go use that period of time, let's say 30 or 60 days, to find another interested investor to buy it. A wholesaler then assigns that contract or the rights in the contract to a buyer at a higher price than what they tied it up for, let's say, and they keep the difference. So they're basically making the spread or commission. It's actually more taxable than commission as well. It's just becoming subject to HST actually assignments are. So it's because it's functionally very similar to a commission, but it doesn't require a real estate license because you're selling an assignment. The real estate wholesaler doesn't make any renovations or 
they carry very little cost, basically just the interest on the deposit because they would have put a deposit down on that original contract. So it's not like flipping real estate. It's basically just like flipping paper is what we call it in the industry, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I've, I've seen stuff where they don't even, where there's no money involved whatsoever, right? They, they get a, a signature and, and yeah. And, and if, and again, this is not something that I have a lot of experience in. And, and Dan, I know you don't either, but I, I do know wholesalers and, and good wholesalers have, they have the system already, right? They know the neighborhood. They know what they can get. They know the comps and they have investors lined up in that neighborhood that are already going to do it. If you listen to bigger pockets, sometimes they call it bird dogging as well. And I, I know this is a lot more popular down in the States than, than it is here, but it has gained a lot of popularity in the last several years and up in, up in Canada. Yeah. And it, it does come with benefits to sellers in certain positions if they just want an offer. They don't want to do showings, especially during COVID. I mean, like yeah. it was actually pretty popular because people didn't want to have to have their house on the market, have a bunch of people coming through. So it really works well. Like, I mean, they were doing it at scale in the States, like basically through like eye buying, they were calling it, mm-hmm. which is like try, kind of trying to make it sound like a tech play, but it was really wholesaling. Just it, the buying side of the wholesaling was done by an algorithm. And then they would basically put it up on Zillow or whatever. Like Zillow was holding assets, Redfin, whatever, Open Door, all these different companies were, and now they're all bag holding a lot of houses. So, and they actually more took possession than anything because of the land transfer tax, but you're also saving the land transfer tax. Like you're not buying and selling it. So there's shrinking transactional costs. Anyway, let's, I I guess quickly, that one's, I would say high difficulty. You need a good market knowledge, high risk because in order to, to shrink the, or to make the spread, to know what the spread is and to, to eliminate risk on the spread, you need to, you need that knowledge to protect yourself. I guess it could also be medium because you're not putting money out in a lot of cases. You're not putting as much money out and you're not putting, putting, yeah. And you're putting non-refundable deposits in a lot of cases. Reward would be high for sure, especially if you're putting in those minimum amounts of capital and basically making typically what's more than a realtor commission on the sale of a house. So realtors would make like 5% that they split between two agents, so 2.5% each. I think most guys in the wholesaling space are targeting 10% minimum. I'd agree. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep moving here. Flipping is the next one. So if you have ever watched anything on HDTV, (laughs) I'm sure you are familiar with the concept of flipping. Very simply put, you buy something, you make it better, you sell it, and you profit off of that new equity that you have built in through the work that you've put in on that asset. So without, you know, I think this is pretty self-explanatory, this one, I'd say the difficulty, again, this is very subject to a time and a place, but I'd say the difficulty is is probably high. I would rate it high. You've got to know you've got to know what you're doing and where you're doing it. You've got to have the full crew and that goes and that that kind of trickles into the risk. We've seen firsthand and and a little close to home where flipping gone wrong, right? If you don't time the market, you are subject to it. However, the reward can also be quite high if you flip and you're on, you know, if you buy right and and like we say a lot Real estate is the money is made on the buy. So if you can buy correctly, you do the work and you've got the team to do the work and you can sell at the opportune time. Flipping can be a very profitable way to do things. But I think across the board, difficulty, risk and reward, I would rate all three of those as as pretty high. Yeah, I would agree with that for flipping for sure. It's definitely. And, and we're going to start to see a lot of, of these things coming back onto the market that weren't successful, I think, over the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Okay, next one on the list here in selling real estate is contract flipping or assignment. Basically like wholesaling, but more common for pre-construction or unbuilt product. So basically, 
people will. This is kind of just becoming common in places like Calgary, as an example, because all the Toronto investors were going out there to, to to flip paper. But you hear about this one a lot on TikTok. Nobody's really verified whether or not this actually makes money because it's new. I don't think it. Well, actually, it's not new. We saw it a lot in the '90s, and we know what happened in the '90s. That's basically going and buying a house that's not built yet, buying a, and so you're getting an options contract basically to purchase a a future home that will be built at a X price and hoping that it goes up in value between today and when it's built. And at some point during that period of time, selling the contract for more than you paid for the contract. Speculation. And in the meantime, <coughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> Sorry. I, look, I mean, I think I've mentioned it enough times here. I, I don't, I think that we're learning right now this doesn't, work as well as we want it to in the in the market builders are marking up prices because they're smart exceptionally smart very good at doing real estate and uh and they want to make that that spread so they're they're selling properties at 10 15 20% over market value over current market value so now you need it to appreciate by 21 or 22 or 25% in order to make a spread. And then, you know, in order to have a buy, make it a compelling purchase for a buyer, you probably got to market down a little bit. So you probably got to, it needs to be worth 30% more. Now, all of a sudden, the market doesn't even need to go down for you to, for this to not be a viable investment. The market just needs to not go up. And yeah. so, and, and I think, you know, Toronto, you're hearing a lot of rumblings about people buying massive amounts of these with no ability no intention to even close, but also no ability to close. They don't have the financial means to close on a lot of these deals. They are, you're putting out, you're only putting out deposit. But the problem is if you fail to close on a, on a, if you fail to close on anything, if you have a contract in place and you've agreed to pay a value for a house, you owe the the builder or the owner of the property, whoever's selling you, you owe the seller of that unit, the money that, that precedent has been set in most courts here. So they can sue you for damages, the difference between the market value that you agreed to and the actual market value. So the risk is is high from my perspective because no matter what, you're paying that price for the unit, even if you can't afford it, even if you can't buy it. If you fail to buy it, you're still going to pay the spread in court later when the builder sues you or when the vendor sues you. So those those court precedents exist. And I mean, that's at an Ontario level, um, but I think that, that a lot of these court precedents are going to start carrying across. I mean, it's also an Ontario phenomenon, that type of investment. Difficulty, I'm going to say hi. They made it sound really easy on TikTok, like just go and put a deposit of down course, on, on yeah. a unit in, in a couple of years. Get five of them. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to get possession of a contract. Maybe not because there's builder allocations and it's a little bit of a crazy market. But um, but let's say it's easy to get a possession of a contract. It's hard to get possession of a profitable contract or to profit on that contract. And the re- reward, I would say, I mean, the risk I-, I went over, but you know, a lot of people think it's low risk because they're only putting de- a deposit structure in. And a lot of those deposits are like 5% today, 5% in 30 days, 5% in 60. And so that it feels like it's low risk. It's not. And the reward, I think, it wouldn't even really be that high. I think you're a lot better off. Had you put all of that money that you would have put into the deposit structure in the meantime, had you put that money into a cash flowing multiplex or any of these other ones that we've mentioned so far, you probably would have made a better yield than you're going to make or not make on on these. So anyway, I won't belabor that one. It's good. Interestingly enough, if you actually look difficulty, risk, and reward, this is the only one that kind of doesn't really stack up because you've got high difficulty, high risk, and only a median reward, right? The That's not trending in the right way. I think it was. There was a period of time, like there was a brief heyday where builders hadn't caught on to what was and going the on yet. And, they, they, and 
yeah, and they weren't marking it up, and the reward was high. But the reward was actually ended up being higher for those people to take close on the units, take possession of them, rent them out, or flip them in the market, even if they're paying capital gains. The reward was high for a period. It's gone now. I think the builders are getting the high reward. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, next one we've got here is rent to own. Another thing that we, another uh, strategy that we've seen kind of emerge. And and I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this strategy over the next few years. With and and Dan, we've talked about and we've actually had some requests to do a full episode on this, so we're just going to touch on it briefly here, folks, and we'll do a, a, a much deeper dive on the rent to own concept shortly. But with rent to own, you own an option. The landlord and tenant agree to apply a portion of the monthly rent payment towards the purchase price of the home. So when the tenant has built up enough of that equity, they can apply for a loan to purchase the home either as a primary residence or as a rental. I would call the difficulty on this one medium, risk medium, and the reward high. And that, and that reward is, is high for actually all parties involved, whether you are the rent to owner or the owner that is now renting to to essentially sell it to that renter. Yeah, it depends, I guess. Like I kind of I wonder if it's actually high for the for the tenant purchaser because I don't know, like they're basically just get getting a savings vehicle, right? Like the landlord's basically just saving the money for them. So I mean, I don't know. I think it's good. It is definitely good for the landlord because they're getting over the yield and eventually get to get rid of the asset in the current market. But I would agree the reward's probably high for all parties in that one. Yeah, and and again, we'll do a deeper dive, but I I just think you know it it's a win win. Usually, the people that are taking part in in a strategy like this aren't able to go and secure a loan for a single family or a rental. So this is a strategy and a vehicle for them, as you said, a savings vehicle for them to allow them to eventually, within a few years, buy a place that they otherwise most likely wouldn't be able to do so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Next up on the list, we have real estate agent. I don't Everyone's know favorite. anything about that. <laughs> so, I mean, look, real estate agents basically just provide a service to buy or sell properties for clients. It, the difficulty based on on what I've heard <laughs> about sentiment around real estate professionals in Canada, the difficulty would be low. The risk would be extremely low. You literally, I mean, maybe, I guess we'll see whether or not people get sued for what just happened in Canadian real estate. But I think, you know, the difficulty on the on the realtor's book is low. They assume very little financial risk. The reward would be medium, I would say. They get 2.5% of of transaction and let's say on average in Canada, some places are higher, some places are lower. So, I mean, I don't need to go too far into that one, but it's a way to make money selling real estate to other people. 100%. And and we'll make the next one kind of quick too, because it is, it is a mortgage agent. And then we know a little bit about this one too. So basically, brokering transactions this is what I do every day, connecting lenders with borrowers and borrowers with lenders for a fee. So the difficulty we have is low. The risk, low. It's a job. And the reward is is lower than, than real estate agents because it's 1% of, of whatever that loan amount is. So if it's a $500,000 loan, that would be a $5,000 payout with some splits. Now, I did just want to address one thing here with both real estate agent and mortgage agent because we have the difficulty and the risk as low. Now, I think why we did that is because the difficulty to get either one of these licenses, it's not that hard. No, no, it's not. But is it difficult to be a great real estate agent and a great mortgage agent? Hell yes. 
And and I think the numbers speak for themselves. If you go and look at Dan, what was that stat that like eight hundred thousand realtors haven't done a deal this year or something like that? And ninety percent of the business is done by ten percent of the agents, all that good stuff. And I would also tie that in with the risk, right? The risk is is low, but what is your time worth? If you go and get a your real estate license or your more or become a mortgage agent and difficulty level is low because you're not a good one, well, then you're at risk because you're essentially just wasting your time. You got to be a dedicated professional to do well in either one of these fields. Although the barrier to entry is low to actually succeed and to get those rewards, and because we have rewards as low and medium, those rewards can be very high if you are a top performer. So I think this one's tricky because there's it's just it's, well, it's painted a, with a very a broad risk. stroke. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's yeah. it's a labor risk. It's not a capital risk. Like, and so it, there is definitely labor risk because you can waste a lot of time. I've seen a lot of agents, a lot of people in the profession waste a lot of time in in both of these professions. But it's not a real capital risk because, well, I mean, I guess it could be because if you're spending a lot of money in marketing or whatever, but you shouldn't be doing that if you're bootstrapping your career. So it, it, there is risk, but it's labor risk. It's not capital risk. I think that that's the important distinction. Next on the list here, we have private lending which is under the lending heading here. I would say basically you're just lending money to people who need money and you're registering those as mortgages against the property. So you're lending mortgages. You as an individual can lend money out to other people who own property and you can register that against the property. It's basically like providing a loan to somebody, but it's secured against real estate. Difficulty, I would say medium. You need to be relatively sophisticated to be able to do this. You need somebody to draft a mortgage commitment. You need a lawyer to register it on title. You need money to lend. And uh, the risk, I would say, in most cases where private mortgages are needed, they're in higher risk deals. You're usually seeing them in higher loan to value or in second position or in deals where there's a reason this person had to go to a private lender because the A side wouldn't touch them and the B side wouldn't touch them. Maybe it's they have too many properties, they're over levered, their income doesn't look good on paper, cash, low credit, whatever it is. So there's, it's a higher, it's a from a lending perspective, going to be one of the highest risk ones on the list. The reward though, from my perspective, is going to be high. Higher than, I mean, th- there isn't a leverage factor, but you're seeing 10 to 15% interest rates, even higher in today's market. So this is basically like, if you if you listen to US real estate investment theory, they call it hard money. This is hard money lending. You're making 10 to 15%, I would say, in a lot of cases. Eight would be the low end, but I mean, even the B side's creeping up on the eight now. So you start to see, it's basically like, Two to four hundred bips. The starting point would be two to four hundred basis points higher than what your B side rates would be. So the returns are. Good. I'd say most of the time, you're well, regardless of Bs, you're probably going to see private money, hard money in that in that double digit interest rate, right? So 10, 10 plus. Let's keep this moving here. Mortgage syndication is the next one. Mortgage syndication allows you to invest in a single real estate loan on a single property. Yeah. So basically, if they have a $1 million private loan, they are private capital. If you had a $1 million private loan on a commercial property, which is where you're starting to see a lot of this stuff, they would take that loan out to market and syndicate in a bunch of investors, fill it with a bunch of investors who are investing, who are buying portions of that mortgage. So let's say it's a million dollar loan. They cut it up into 10 $100,000 pieces and they go raise $100,000 from 10 different people. Whereas a MIC, if they had that million dollars, would spread those mortgages out over a whole bunch of different properties. So the difference is, Nick, I think the the title, right? Yeah. So you can actually have your name registered on title. So you're better, uh, you have better recourse against a specific property. 
Yeah. So the challenge though, is that your risk isn't diversified. So your risk mm-hmm. is only put into one single property. Whereas with a MIC, you would get your risk spread across an entire portfolio or pool of, of mortgages, which is where you hear about things like Fortress happening, Fortress Real Developments, which has honestly given syndication a bad name in Canada. Do you want to, do you want to read me the most recent headline that we saw from, from You're our friends? You're usually the guy that reads the bad stuff. I got to read this. I know. I, I had to send you this one. <laughs> so Ed, we're going to do an episode on Fortress and Epic and some other kind of major fails in Canadian real estate. I think that'll be an interesting one, but here we go. Fortress Real Developments founders charged with fraud. That is not good. Co-founders of Mortgage Syndication Company accused of not adequately disclosing risks to investors. Yeah, I think that was from the Toronto Star like about four months ago. I mean, this one's been rigorously tracked on Twitter. Actually, a couple of major contributors on Twitter were the were the individuals who kind of really brought this to light. It's taken a long time for this to come out in the wash, but basically they were fundraising for mortgages, but functionally using it like equity and, and those risks weren't disclosed to to the investors. So they were going a little bit higher than where they should. And FISRA actually has come back now. So syndicated mortgages are now have to, they can't exceed 90% loan to value. There's a bunch of other different rules. If you're interested, just Google FISRA, FSRA, and syndicated mortgages. And you can see the changes that happened as a result of this big thing blowing up. So difficulty, I'm going to say low. It's literally like a lot of the investors who were doing these were they would see an advertisement somewhere. They would show up at a big seminar, investment seminar, and they would be presented with some opportunities and they would literally just write a check and it would become part of a mortgage. The risk is high. You literally just gave somebody a check who is going to make a mortgage out of your money and only it's only registered against one property. And I would say the reward was medium. I think you can get better returns than what they were delivering, mostly because they failed to deliver on a lot of the returns sounded great. They were promising like 22%. The project IRRs were like 22%, but the lenders or the borrowers investors, let's call them, but investors were were only being delivered yields of like 10, 12%, right? So the projects were good. Who makes the money? Well, the, the guy syndicating the funds there, right? Next up, equity. So quickly, we talked about these in the last one. So REITs are real estate investment trusts. As you know, I worked for one of these in the past called InterRent. They're basically like mutual funds, but they pool the capital of a bunch of different investors, makes it possible for individuals to earn dividends from real estate investments without having to buy, manage, or finance properties themselves. Kind of like a limited partnership. So it basically just flows through everything to your individual balance sheet through a dividend. So the earnings become your tax obligation, not the REITs tax obligation. So you pay tax on the the earnings like a limited partner would. Examples of this, Nick? Yeah, we've got Allied REIT, one that we brought up before, a wonderful company in Toronto. The ticker is AP.UN and the dividend is sitting at 6.73% right now. Yeah, another one would be InterRent REIT, who I mentioned I worked for in the past. Ticker was IIP.UN, dividend is 2.75%. H&R Rent is another one, ticker is HR.UN, dividend sitting just an under 45 at 4.39%. Rio Can REIT, dividend is 4.81%. We actually, they're retail focused, but they, because they own a bunch of plazas, they're actually really getting into development. We actually sat with uh, Calliope Carcass, who is, runs Rio Can Living at, a, at, a, at that PwC event recently, and she was on a panel at a, another great event. So really interesting stuff that they're doing to generate further yield and growth because they're basically becoming a developer now of all of those old plazas they own. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool model. And we're going to go and and actually we've got an upcoming episode with our pod fathers, a Canadian investor, Braden and Simone over there, where we are going to talk all about REITs and kind of have a internal discussion slash debate 
stocks versus real estate. Yeah, and I know I know we're running pretty close on time here, so I'll try and wrap this one up quick. We did talk a lot about mix in one of the most recent episodes, but if you're a US stock market investor, they have REITs that are called mortgage trusts, such as New York Mortgage Trust or NYMT, whose dividend yield is like 14.41%. And I'll use this to kind of segue to the Canadian equivalent of mortgage trusts, which are mix or mortgage investment companies. Nick, so tell me a little bit about those. Yeah, I mean, we just did an episode on this and basically you give them your money, they pull it together and lend it out. It's pretty simple. Yeah, it's actually interesting. We've kind of been approached recently by an investment bank uh, to potentially start something like this for our listeners, which is really cool. Yeah. And you know what? I I can see it happening. I would love to create a make, but I feel like it's it's almost a saturated space. You need to you know, have a a decent niche or or wedge to to lend to. If we're going to do this, we need to know what kind of borrowers we'd be looking for. Yeah. I mean, if it was me, to be honest, like I'd, I'd personally love to just lend to people that like are using the strategies that we're talking about, right? So it's like people who already own a property and they want to add an ADU and we give them 100K to add a new suite to their unit. And because we know that the income is going to come from that new rental stream and we also know the value is going to come so they can get a, a cash out refinance from the bank because they've just added value to the property. So to me, it's like, and it's and it's meaningful because it's creating more housing, which is really a big goal of, of mine. And I think of the podcast and our, our investors. So for sure. So you heard it here first. Stay tuned. Maybe we'll be lending you money to build a ADU or one of your multiplexes on your properties. This was an awesome episode, Dan. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed doing it. We will talk to you soon. Thanks. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GNH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.